0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. In today's message, we begin our third and final week of the series, Life Lessons from David, The Man Who Would Be King. Looking at 1 Samuel 27, we'll discover a lesson on trusting God when we imagine the worst.
1: Some time ago, I remember reading an article in a newspaper purporting that new studies were underway leading to a different understanding of Genesis than the way the book has traditionally been understood. I read the article with some interest and then, well, I groaned. The author of the article said that some scholars were viewing the patriarchs and their families as less than ideal examples. Well, the article went on to say that Jacob could be seen as largely responsible for the breach between he and his brother, and that the 12 sons constituted what might be viewed as a dysfunctional family. The author seemed to think that this was a grand revelation. Well, of course, every child that ever went to Sunday school already knew that. They were taught that Abraham sold his wife into a harem, that Isaac lacked leadership and initiative, and that Jacob was a deceiver, and that his ten sons sold their brother into slavery. And yes, this dysfunctional family actually does form the foundation for the chosen people of God. And what's more, not a few Sunday school students have wondered how it is that David is a man after God's own heart, given that he was a man of war and responsible for a list of sins we would consider unacceptable for any Christian leader today. And the lesson that all Sunday school children learn and all of us later in years would learn from the Bible's best known men and women is twofold. The first is that the Bible never portrays its characters as flat, one-dimensional characters. Unlike others who portray their leaders in only positive and glowing terms, the Bible has an unflinching honesty in its portrayal of the real lives of the real people it describes. Everyone, with the exception of Jesus, is shown to be a sinner. Jesus alone is worthy of praise. And secondly... The real people portrayed in the Bible prove what Paul teaches us so eloquently in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in Romans 4.5, that God justifies the ungodly. God takes hellbound, sinful, erring, and inconsistent people and makes them his own, using them for his glory. This is the story of grace and mercy and the compassion of our God. No, we didn't need a new scholarly study to tell us the key characters in the Bible are less than perfect. That was the very point of the story in the first place. I wonder if there is a chapter that shows this better than 1 Samuel 27. The first verse showcases David's lack of trust in God as well as any statement possibly could. The chapter opens by saying, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape from his hand. Let's remember what led David to this conclusion. In the previous chapter, David again narrowly escaped Saul's advance into the Judean wilderness where he was hiding. Saul had come to kill him, and were it not, for the fact that David had found Saul rather than the other way around, David would have died at Saul's hand. And since this was now the second time that Saul took his army to kill him, David assumes that unless he takes radical action, he will soon die. But notice again how the chapter begins. Then David said in his heart. Another way of saying it is this. Then David convinced himself. Or, David carried on an internal dialogue with himself in which he formed a perspective which determined his actions. Like all matters of life, our perspective and the narrative we adopt regarding our life circumstances define the decisions we make and can even define the kind of life that we lead. Now, David's internal dialogue is remarkable when when you think about it. In chapter 22, Gad the prophet had specifically delivered to David a word from God that under no circumstance was he to seek refuge in a Moabite fortress, rather that he was to remain in the region of Judah. In chapter 23, when Saul was closing in on David and it looked like David was about to be killed, the Philistines suddenly invaded and Saul was forced to break off his pursuit of David. God had intervened to protect David. And then in chapter 24, the Lord placed Saul at David's mercy as Saul went to relieve himself in the very cave where David and his men were. God showed David that it was Saul and not David who was vulnerable. And in chapter 25, when David almost made a dreadful mistake by going out and killing Nabal, and when Abigail went out to meet him... To prevent him from this act of revenge, she says to him, and I'm reading from chapter 25, verse 29 If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. The word was a prophetic word, speaking to David's life. God, she said, will never allow you to fall to your enemies. And then in chapter 26, we're told that when Saul comes after David again, God himself caused the entire army of Saul, sentries and all, to fall asleep. According to verse 12, a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. God was telling David, I can and will always intervene on your behalf. This being the case, that every time Saul went to get David, God had supernaturally intervened, controlling all things down to meticulous details. And God had done so to such an extent that none of this had escaped David's notice. How then does David say in his heart, Now I shall one day perish by the hand of Saul. How has David rehearsed such a scenario in his mind? Given all that God had showed him, should we not find chapter 27 beginning this way? Then David said in his heart, Now I know that God will protect me and deliver me from all my foes. Why couldn't David say that in 1 Samuel 27? Why couldn't he say what he would later say in Psalm 40 verse 4? There he said, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, and who does not go astray after a lie. But instead of making the Lord his trust, David did turn to the proud, or to the idol worshipers of his day. Verses 2 and 4 read as follows. So David arose and went over he and the 600 men who were with him to Achish the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer pursued him. The fascinating part of this story is that David had already done this once before. I mean, the last time he was in Gath, he was so terrified that the Philistines would kill him that he pretended to be a madman, wrote nonsense on the walls of Gath, let saliva run down his beard. I mean, so much so that he convinced everyone that he was mentally ill. He finally left the city utterly humiliated, and here he is, back again. But this time he thinks it will go better with him, and that's because by now all the Philistines know that Saul seeks to kill David. They know he has been driven from his homeland and that he has no place of refuge at home anymore. They now view him not as a dangerous enemy, but as a valuable ally. Now, just before we completely condemn David's act of unbelief in going over to the Philistines and living in the hometown of Goliath nonetheless, and seeking refuge from the enemies of God, let's at least allow ourselves the dignity of viewing this from David's perspective. For one, Saul would never leave him in peace. David would always be a refugee, and his 600 men and whatever family were attached to them were all vulnerable along with him. The Ziphites, who lived in that region, had demonstrated they would betray David every chance they got. Furthermore, as in the case of Nabal, David was aware he needed to supply his standing army from wealthy men who had supplies, but given that many of the people in the land were spies working for Saul, every time David sought to supply his troops, he was even more vulnerable. Richard Phillips, in his commentary on 1 Samuel, argues that David's move to Gath really does constitute a lack of faith. But we do well before we condemn David entirely to recognize his dilemma. Phillips writes, We have an example here, I believe, of how easy it is for us to be piously critical of others without considering their very real difficulties. When considering biblical figures, we can easily offer a simplistic answer to their problems. You know, Phillips invites us to consider two possible applications— He invites us to consider a pastor who faces opposition, unjust criticism, a daily diet of conflict, slander, and criticism, he says, from either members of the congregation or key leaders. We so easily say, why didn't he just trust God more? Or he invites us to consider a Christian wife who faces physical or emotional abuse from her husband, harsh treatment, threats, and belittling comments on a daily basis from an overbearing and increasingly volatile and violent husband. We tell her to honor her marital vows, to trust God, and yet her wounds within her are so crushing and so filled with a whirlwind of blinding pain that she flees her marriage because she is simply staggered under the weight of burdens she simply can no longer carry. In each of these cases, we do well
0: to temper our criticism. Where is their faith?
1: Well, we'll come back to this after the
0: break. We know that the Bible commands us to trust in God at all times and lean not on our own understanding, but this requires a lifelong journey. And even at the end, we may never fully trust Him as we should. In 1 Samuel 27, we're studying the character of a man who, like us, struggles to have faith in God's plan even when he's witnessed the hand of God in his life so strongly. But David's journey to trust in God was far from over. There's much to learn and apply from this story, when we come back. This month we're excited to announce that Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld will be launched worldwide as both an audio and video podcast, and the program will be airing on Vision TV on Sundays at twelve thirty Eastern. Each episode, Dr. Newfeld speaks biblically into current events, discusses critical truths of the Bible that all believers need to hear, and interviews provocative and insightful guests. It's all about allowing God's Word, the Bible, to speak clearly into the questions of life and faith. And remember, you can also catch Back to the Bible Canada's Truth and Life today on YouTube, podcast, online, or by downloading the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app. All of our Bible teaching programs are available at your fingertips and on your schedule. Check it out or consider supporting all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada by visiting backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.
1: In each of these cases, the pastor or the abused wife that Phillips mentions, and hundreds of other cases that fit into this category. We who are not walking in these situations so easily say, where is your faith? Hasn't God sustained you in the past? Writes Phillips, a Christian mother may be required to take prudent steps to protect her children from a violent husband. Missionary leaders will find it wise to consider the danger in certain parts of the world and so forth. The fact is that God does protect his own. The fact also may be that at times we are placed into situations in which we're not altogether sure of exactly how to trust in God. We've painted an interesting scenario of David. God had determined to protect him, and David seemed unable to see what to do next. Clearly, David needed to do something, and in his mind, his only option is to go to Gath. Well, let's continue to read our account. We remember that David has gone to Gath, and that the early reward for his decision is that now, for the first time, Saul is no longer pursuing him. But now let's read verses 5 to 7. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag, therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day, and the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. In many ways, David's suggestion to Achish must have seemed like a wonderful idea. The reality was that David's presence in Gath did create a problem. His arrival in the city would have created an economic problem. Where do they house and feed all the people who are with David? Whose food do they eat, and where do they live, and on whose land do they reside? And it would have created a military problem, even though by now it must have been clear that David would not be a Trojan horse entering into his city, yet who are David's fighting men to be accountable to? It would not do to have another warlord living in the city of Gath. You just can't ignore this disciplined and highly effective fighting force, and so Achish gave David a city of his own, the city of Ziklag. And the location of the city of Ziglag has not been positively identified by modern-day archaeologists. Many believe it might be the modern-day tel Sira, And if that's right, it would be located some 40 kilometers southwest of Gath in the territory that Joshua had assigned to the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites had never conquered the city, and here, in one act of kingly decree, King Achish, a Philistine king, gives it to Israel, believing David is now permanently an outcast of Israel. Since the city was so far removed from Gath, David is now out of the watchful eye of Achish and away from the constant pursuit of Saul. Many commentators note that there was a feudal practice in that day of giving land to the servants of a king, and so David was given the freedom to develop Ziglag as he saw fit and expand its influence for the sake of the Philistine empire. But of course, as we know, David had other plans. Let's keep reading our text. Verse 8. Now, David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites, for those were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. Uh, Please notice several things from that verse. First, David immediately set out to do military conquests and to protect the new territory he had acquired. Second, notice that David is not fighting the Philistines because that, at this point in time, would have been suicide. Third, notice that one group of people that he fights are the Amalekites, the people Saul was to have destroyed but had failed because, as you remember, he had not fully obeyed the Lord's command and was rejected as king. Finally, notice what David never does. He never fights against Israel. And it's here that we need to stop and ponder. David may have gone over to Philistia, but he would never wage war against Israel. This was a line he simply would never cross. Perhaps he had not trusted in God fully, and perhaps he had even disobeyed God, but he never forgot that his loyalty was to the Lord his God and with the people of his God. He may have been driven out of Israel, and he may have been betrayed by the Ziphites, but he would never turn his hand against the people of God. And this is a lesson for all of us to learn. Regardless of our own sins and failures and the lack of faith, we must know that we still belong to Christ and we still belong to the very people of God. Never allow your defeats, your disappointments, the bitterness and personal sins that you have done to turn you from your God or from his people. This is a line we must never cross. Yes, we will sin. Yes, we will panic. Yes, we will act out of fear at times, but we will never forget that we belong to Christ. We are among his people, the church, and that is our hope. David remembered that. Well, how does that apply to us? Well, to the disappointed pastor, never fail to love the people of God. To the abused wife, never console yourself in the arms of another man. To the missionary who knows it's too dangerous to go out, never stop praying for those who have never heard the gospel. And for the church that has been formed, never forget who you are and what it is to be called by God and never, never become jaded or bitter in your calling. And at this point in time, the narrative becomes a little disturbing for some of us. I'm reading in verse 9 to the end of the chapter. There it says, And David would strike the land and would leave neither man or woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jarmulites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man or woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, Lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines, and Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. Two things bother us in this passage. The first is that David was killing everyone in whole villages. How do we respond to the idea that David seems to be an ethnic cleanser? Even though we don't have time to address this in detail, we do notice several things. What David was doing was part of the Mosaic command to drive the people who inhabited Canaan from their land. It is a command not to conduct global jihad. It is a command limited to a geography of Canaan in which God is punishing certain people groups for horrible crimes against God. The second thing that might bother us here is the frequency in which David now lies to Achish. Achish asks him how he is managing his territory, and David leads Achish to believe he is raiding Israelite territory and that he has turned his back against his people. Chapter 27 of 1 Samuel presents us with David, who has now become a man much engaged in compromise and weaving a tangled web of lies in order to survive. And that leads us to a question. What should David have done in the first place? Should he have stayed in the small territory of Judea where Saul knew exactly where to hunt him? Well, the Bible never provides us with the answer, but the very first line in 1 Samuel 27 tells us what was wrong with David. David said in his own heart, I shall perish by Saul one day. Years later, David would display a very different attitude. It's found in Psalm 45, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me, David asks. Why am I so upset? And then David prescribes a solution, a very different one from the one he had before. Not, I think all my enemies will beat me in the end. No, not that solution. Rather, in Psalm 45, verse 5, David says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. And to those of us who have made mistakes or who are discouraged or who are thinking the worst possible scenario, or for those of us who don't know what faith might ask us to do, David, a man who has made all the mistakes that you and I have made, answers in a very simple phrase, hope in God. Heavenly Father, we do put our hope in you. We live in a sin ravaged world and we have sinned, but our hope is always in you. Keep us focused in your love. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thanks for your message today, John. Uh, As you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, often we do the same thing David did. I think we run away because sometimes we don't know what else to do. So how do we know that? How do we know what is the right thing to do? The reality is that we know
1: the right thing to do is to obey the Word of God, but sometimes when we come to specific situations in our lives, we don't know how to apply it, and sometimes it does become complicated. And the more I thought about this chapter, the more I was reflecting on the fact that I didn't know if I were David's counselor how I would have counseled him, and it kind of reminds me that maybe all of life is like that. There are times when we just don't know what to do. I think the good news from this chapter is that God continues to be faithful even when we might not be or when we don't even know what the faithful thing to do is. God never lets go of us. And I think the other thing I kind of took from this is that David knew that there were certain lines he would not cross. His loyalty would remain to the Lord his God and to the people of his God, and and, and he seems rooted and anchored there. And uh, God continues to hold him, and and God has a wonderful plan for his life, and he does for us. So I think the word is, take hope. Take hope.
0: When we look at David's response to his situation, fleeing to enemy territory, lying in order to survive, we see a man who really struggled to trust in God to save his life. Here is a man whose actions and thoughts very much mirror what happens to many of us who act out of fear and doubt. I hope that today's message has encouraged and perhaps challenged you that even in the worst scenarios that we may find ourselves in, it's placing our hope in God that will ultimately see us through. Join us tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld continues following the life of David in 1 Samuel chapter 28. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. wrote, I have been saved for over 50 years, was just a little girl, in fact. Back to the Bible has been part of my life forever, and I've given to the ministry even out of my allowance when I was little. Dr. Newfeld brings scripture to life. There is depth yet practicality, challenge, but hope. The world has changed. Technology has made everything closer. Ministries have changed. Yet, Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teachings. They have embraced technology while making sure the gospel is not diluted. You do a marvelous work and I look forward to hearing you every day. Sarah, thank you. Friends like you make this Bible teaching ministry possible. If you have a story to share or if you'd like to share a gift of support, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.